think after that song, it would be very appropriate to lift up the sermon to him in prayer. So why don't you do that with me? Dear Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer and just the, the, the solace as the song sings, the, the, the peace um, that comes with that, Lord. And so we, we just lift the remaining service up to you, Lord. And we, we lift the rest of our lives up to you, Lord. And so um, we ask that uh, you bless the sermon, Lord, that uh, you give me peace of heart and clarity of mind, Lord, that these words would be yours, not mine, um, and, and that you would be glorified. You alone from the service uh, would be glorified. We thank you and we love you in your name. Amen. So there's a story that speaks of a, a young man who loans an acquaintance $500. And unfortunately, very quickly, this young man realizes that he failed to get this transaction in writing. He has no proof of this transaction ever taking place. And so when it came to the agreed upon day one year later for payment to be made, he realized he was probably out that $500. Well, as any good young man does, he goes to his father to ask some advice. Dad, what, you know, what should I do? I, I, I feel I'm out this $500. And, and honestly, that would be really nice to have back. His dad thinks thoughtfully for a moment and, and then is like, son, this is what you're going to do. Write a letter to this, this acquaintance and, and asking him for his $1,000 that he owes you. Well, the young man quickly is like, wait, wait, dad, no, it, it's 500 It's not that bad. And, and, and he's like, no. Write him. Eric, you're already getting ahead of me. <laughs> Write him asking for the $1,000 that he owes you. That way he'll be sure to write you and let you know that he only owes you $500. And then you will have your, your, um, your transaction in writing and you will have your $500. That is commonly how we think of wisdom. Kind of that shrewdness, that, that ability to get what you want what, when you need it. Um, that, that's so often what we settle on when we think of wisdom. That or maybe it was kind of like me with, with my beloved Sunday school teacher, Miss Apple. It was, what a wonderful woman. But she really started this wrestling match in my, in my mind of what exactly wisdom is when she posed the question to us as a Sunday school class to think, to dwell on what exactly is this wisdom that we are called to have as believers. And we often settle on these cheap ideas of what wisdom is. As, as I said, the shrewdness or maybe just knowledge, knowing a lot. And that's typically what, as a Sunday school class, we kept coming back to over and over and over again. However, this is such a minimal view of wisdom. Wisdom is a divine attribute, something that comes only from God, and something that Solomon knew quite well after being blessed with the gift of wisdom in his own life from God himself. And so, this passage, as we continue our study in Ecclesiastes, is going to deal directly with the nature of wisdom. And it's highly important that we understand what this wisdom is in order that we can understand how to obtain it, and then also how to apply it to our lives, because I promise you, it's important. It means the world, or it should mean the world to us today, because wisdom is, as I said, solely divine. And so Solomon begins in, in Ecclesiastes 
obviously talking about everything's being hebel, as Niall has pointed out. Everything's foolishness. It's vanity. And honestly, this week, I don't think it's hard, as I was thinking on this, to see that. Honestly, when we care as a world much more about the travel plans of a guy who's pretty good at basketball as he's moving back home from Florida, LeBron James, that, that, that's dominated the new scene. And no, I love sports, and I, I'll admit I've watched my fair share of Sports Center this week. Ashlyn knows. But that's our focus. It's certainly not wisdom, definitely not, let alone any issue of social injustice or anything else of matter that's not Hebel. We, we settle for Hebel, and that's because we lack wisdom today. So Solomon's going to take us through this section of Ecclesiastes and really hopefully guide our minds to readjusting towards the concept of wisdom. And he does that by dividing wisdom into three three um, tools, as I've put in your notes. There are three tools to helping us as we go through this very chaotic, very hebel-filled life. And so, let's turn to Ecclesiastes 7. If you find in the middle of your Bible, Psalms, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. It will be in Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verses 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching, but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, and not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Solomon starts this section off honestly, with an age-old question. The age-old question of, why do the good die young? You can read that in his writings here in verses 16, where it's, uh, or excuse me, seven, or 15. Um, I've seen all these in my life, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, last time I was um, preaching, and we talked about the frustrations that sometimes come along in this life where we seemingly see 
God not exactly making sense to ourselves. And Solomon's back. And honestly, it's important that we understand this point uh, um, in order to get the context of his, his discussion on wisdom. You see, I share in this frustration, this frustration that Solomon has so often. Honestly, it comes, um, comes out more maybe like a couple years ago when we had 20 students in Connecticut, young kids killed in their classroom. I really wrestle with God in times like that. And yet, as a youth pastor, and maybe just because it, it's, I see it, unfortunately, more, I'm really frustrated with people like Hugh Hefner, who are ages older than any of us, unfortunately, but yet succeeding and thriving on a pornography industry that is destroying families and students. It's incredibly frustrating. I understand what Solomon is saying here. Why are these children being killed, or, or why are the good, the people who, who seemingly are, are, are righteous, why do they die young and the wicked succeed and, and have this good long life? It's frustrating. Well, there are lots of these questions that we come to. And Solomon's using this as the backdrop for our discussion today. But if this isn't maybe your question, you know your own personal question that you wrestle with God. Maybe it's why on earth did he allow sin into the, into the world? Maybe it's the, the why me syndrome, where everything is, is why me, God. Whatever your question is, you have that, that backdrop that you approach God with. And too often we come to him seemingly demanding him give us an answer. God, explain yourself, because if you don't, honestly, I give up. I, I, I'm, I'm, you're, you're not God. If you can't tell me, if you can't prove to me these things, why would I follow you? Why are you God? And honestly, that would be like if, if one of you handed me a 10,000-piece puzzle, dumped it on the floor, and said, you have five minutes. Put it together. But if you fail to in five minutes, then obviously there is no picture on, uh, that this puzzle makes up. It's impossible. Obviously, we would say, that's ridiculous. And so... I need us to, to, as we walk through this, as, as we see Solomon, and this is the end of my rant here. As I said, it's a little bit of a recap of my previous sermon. We need to approach God with humility. And that's honestly going to be the, the, the first tool that, that, that God gives us through wisdom, is humility. Humility is such a missing thing today, and especially as we view ourselves in light of who God is. Solomon continues in his writings here in verse 16, Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? But do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? And some scholars and, and pastors, they, they come to this passage and they, they say, you know, this is kind of that find a happy medium passage. Live your life in a way that, yeah, you're, you're good, but you're not like, extreme. You're not over here. You know, maybe, maybe find a spot, you know, in this range. Yeah, be righteous. It's a good thing. Uh, but don't be over wicked. Don't, don't be way over here either, you know, but sometimes it, it's okay. You know, you're sinful. There's grace and everything somewhere in here. So just find a happy medium that works for you. That's not the gospel I know. I'm sorry. It's not. What I see, and especially in the context of our previous um, talking about um, how we relate to God, I think what he's trying to say, Solomon here, is that 
we shouldn't be self-righteous. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be overly righteous in order that you could tell God, God, I am this righteous. Give me my, my hundred years and maybe a few blessings along the way. Give me my white picket fence, my dog, my kids, and 2.5 children. You know, the, give, give me those things because I, 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 I'm righteous. Don't be self-righteous in order to bargain with God because, let's be honest, you don't hold any chips to bargain with. The only thing that you deserve is death. And so yet, Solomon recognizes we can't come to the table of the Lord with this idea of we own all the chips. We control God. Now on the flip side, we also can't come over here and say, God, you know what? You're going to forgive me anyway, so I I can kind of live how I want. It's kind of fun to be over here a little bit. You know, maybe even just until I'm like 25, then I'll actually settle down and, and be normal maybe. I don't know. Whatever the mindset is, I, I, I find myself wrestling in both camps a little bit sometimes. Where, yes, I try to justify myself with, oh, don't worry, there's grace. And, but yet over here, uh, yeah, I don't want to be too righteous because, the, the, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's awkward sometimes. Or I'm just, it's, I want to bargain with God. I'll do this. I'll have my quiet time. I'll, I'll get up here and preach a sermon every now and then just so I've got my chips so I can say, oh, oh yeah, God, come on, you, you can bless me. I, I don't think anyone here would doubt that, that <laughs> they can find themselves quickly in either one of those camps. And so Solomon says, wisdom teaches us we need to be humble because both of these perspectives are highly, highly selfish. They are highly selfish mentalities. They teach us that we control God, we can manipulate God, and that couldn't be further from the truth. No, you see, we are mankind. We, we deserve death. We have sinned against the holy God. You want Hebel, just look at mankind. <laughs> it doesn't take long. That's what Solomon has been wrestling with this whole book. And so he says here, it's good to hold on to one and to not let go of the other. Let's live in light of the fact that we live in a state where we are called to be righteous And we are made righteous by Christ. But yet, there is also grace for the times when we do mess up. And so wisdom says, hold on to both. Be humble. Because it's a very humble state to find yourself in the middle of both of those realities. That you're not good enough to get this righteousness. And you're never going to be perfect. And you're always going to need grace. That only points you to humility. Secondly, Wisdom gives us the tool of perspective. And honestly, perspective was one that I don't necessarily think of immediately when I think of of wisdom. But it's a powerful tool, and one that I think is incredibly necessary in the Christian life today. I've got a letter. It's a made-up letter, but it's a letter from a a, a college uh, freshman to her parents. Listen. Dear Mom and Dad, It has been three months since I left for college. I have been remiss in writing, and I am very sorry for my thoughtlessness in not having written before. I will bring you up to date now, uh, but before you read on, please sit down. You are not to read any further unless you are sitting down, okay? Well then, 
I, I am getting along pretty well now. The skull fracture and the concussion I got when I jumped out of the window of my dormitory when it caught fire shortly after my arrival are pretty well healed by now. Please do not worry. I only jumped from the 10th story window and only spent two weeks in the hospital. Now I can almost see normally and only get headaches about once a day. Because of the brain trauma that was caused from the little accident, I will be unable to run track this spring. Yes, Dad, this does mean that my full-ride scholarship will be revoked, but fortunately the financial aid office told me that the $138,000 that will be owed can be financed through the school's 18% APR financing. Isn't that great? Yes, Mother. Yes, Father. I know you may be glad um, that I am, I am studying pre-medicine, so I will be able to help pay back some of this college debt. However, I suppose this would be a good a time to tell you that I have decided to switch my major. My dream from childhood has been to be a doctor. However, when you hear why I have decided to switch, I think you will be quite pleased. You see, he's tall, dark, and handsome. Need I say more? That is why I've decided to switch my major to Sri Lankan cultural studies. Now that I have brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I did not have a concussion or a skull fracture. I was not in the hospital. I will be running track, and therefore there will be a full-ride scholarship. I did not change my major, and I am not in love with a man who studies Sri Lanka. However, I am getting a D in sociology and an F in science, and I just wanted you to see these marks in proper perspective. Your loving daughter. I really wish I had thought of that. Perspective is a very powerful thing, and certainly in situations a lot different than just bad school grades. Perspective in the Christian life is, is, is vital. I'm sorry, we are asked as believers to do some incredibly difficult things. Daily, we are told that we need to be, we need to be ambassadors. We need to be on the front lines, remaining faithful. We need to, to combat our enemy that we have that is very apparent in the world today. And unfortunately, we need to expect persecution all the while. Expect it, not be shocked by it. And so without perspective, honestly, the Christian life becomes very, very, very difficult. And so wisdom teaches us the need for perspective. Certainly a biblical perspective, not one as I just read. I think one of the best stories that illustrates this point is David and Goliath. David and Goliath is so often glazed over because it, it, it is common You've heard it since you were in grade school, maybe even a little bit before then. It's familiar. But it teaches a powerful message on perspective. Because when you face those Goliaths, those giants in your life that will come up, that you need to, uh, to expect in life, you can either look at that giant from your perspective and realize that he's twice your size and twice your power and twice your might. And that giant in life will defeat you, and, and you're going to run over here back to your camp and hide out in your tent while he makes a mockery of you and, honestly, your faith in the Lord. Sure, you can do that. Or you can do a, a, as David. And you see this, this, this giant, while, yes, 
much, much larger and very hard to wrestle with from your perspective or, or you can see it from God's. That giant isn't very big to the Lord. The Lord is powerful. The Lord delivers. And that's what David says so, so boldly, not because of his own skill with a slingshot, but no, because of his faith in the Lord. His perspective is, the Lord is bigger than this giant. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God is bigger than this furnace. Regardless of if we die here, the Lord is bigger. We have perspective. He knows what he's doing. That's wisdom. I know that you probably know people who fail to have perspective. And they go through life with a lot of fear and anxiety. And I fall into this as well. But we need to rest on the promises of the Lord. He is sovereign. That he's our father. That he cares for us like a father. And we need to rest in those promises because those are realities. Those aren't just nice sayings that we can, that we can dwell on in the good times. Thirdly, whoop, I apologize. We kind of need to get to the scripture on that point here. Look at, uh, to, to illustrate this point of, of perspective on verse 20. There's not a righteous man on earth who does, not do, or who does what is right and never sins. Okay, perspective is, we are all sinful people. I don't think that's news to anybody. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. And for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Super practical. Solomon here gets as practical as he can to, make this, to illustrate this point is saying that we're all sinful. So why should you expect to go through life without hearing some, some harsh words? Because you know in your own heart that you might have done that too. That kind of hit me between the eyes uh, this week. As, you know, I, can, I can dwell on, man, they said that about me. Well, put it in perspective. Consider the source, so to speak. Sinful man. Now, and I want to I be real honest, I think you can go a step further than Solomon did here and say not only are the curses that maybe people bestow upon you, but maybe also the blessings, the, the praises, can be also dangerous to dwell on. Again, consider the source. Who are we striving to please? Who are we striving to, 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 to enjoy us? Well, that's the Lord. Now, certainly, I'm not going to minimize the, the um, use that God has of, of people and the encouraging words that they can give, or maybe correction as well. That's all throughout Scripture. But you have to be able to have the wisdom and, and discernment to figure out, is this really something I need to listen to? And that's what Solomon is getting at here. Consider the source. Is this something that, that God is using, or is this just hebel? All right, thirdly, Wisdom gives us the tool of insight. Insight is, again, a very powerful thing. Look at, at uh, verse 26. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. 
I find more bitter than death. Those are kind of bold words. And, and honestly, what he's describing here, as it often is in wisdom literature, so the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, that's what makes up what we call the wisdom literature. Oftentimes, uh, they use the terminology of a, a woman, a seductive woman, to mean sin. To mean the enticement of sin. Because so often, uh, sin can be seductive, entrapping, very uh, um, alluring. And so wisdom teaches us that the need for insight, again, the best illustration I can think of is from the Odyssey. Not, not Adventures in Odyssey, I did that last time, but the Odyssey. The story of Odysseus returning home, I believe, from the war in Troy, and his, his adventures along the way, the things that he wrestles with, the, 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 um, the immense monsters and all those things. One of them, if you remember, from back in, in high school, when you actually had the time to read that story, or were just forced to, like me, the sirens. The sirens, if you remember, were, were these, these woman-like beings who uh, were on an island. And as sailors would sail by, they would sing a, a song that was apparently so beautiful that no one could resist going towards this beautiful music. They were blinded by the danger, though, that existed there. The, the rocks, the, the reef that their boat would then crash into and they would be marooned on this island. And I don't remember the sirens being very nice once they were marooned on this island. So what does Odysseus do when he learns, when he is given insight into this peril, he decide, uh, forms a, a plan with, his, um, with the people on his ship to a, cover their ears, but also for him, so he could not steer the ship because he didn't trust himself, had his arms tied behind the mast so that they could sail right by without any distractions getting in the way. Sin is like that. We have to be aggressive sometimes. We have to take the insight that the Scripture gives us that even just knowing our, the reality of, of ourselves we need to use that, be aggressive, tie ourselves to the mast so that we keep sailing. So maybe it's don't be on the computer by yourself. Don't go to or that group of, of women who constantly are gossiping about their husbands and children. Don't, don't go with that crowd of students in your school. It really only leads whatever it is. We have to be wise. We have to be aggressive in using the insight that we've been blessed with in the Scriptures and combat that. This is wisdom. I read the next section, honestly, and I thought maybe this was a reason to say that guys were somehow more righteous than women. It's not. I'm just going to read it, but no tomatoes, please. The, the, 27. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Now what's that saying? Solomon is simply saying it is incredibly rare to find wisdom on this earth. The form of man there is a very generic form, meaning mankind. That includes women. He's saying that the odds are one in a thousand that, that, that 
there is wisdom found. I, I, I found out when, when Germany beat Brazil this week 7-1, to one, which is ridiculous that seven goals are even scored by a team, the odds were 1 to 999. So Solomon's saying even more rare than that is, is wisdom. That's all he's saying. The, the women, you have to think in light of what we've just talked about. There's no wisdom in sin. Remember the, the, the analogy of, of a seductive woman. Here he's saying there's no wisdom in sin, and it's even rare just among people. That's all he's saying, is that it's incredibly rare. Well, I don't care if it's rare, honestly, and I don't want to just leave you guys with this, okay, now you know a little bit about wisdom and leave. No. I want to do something about it. I want us to grapple with this. I want us to take it and and maybe figure out a way to make Three Lakes. While it might be rare everywhere, let's make this a hub where the odds look a little bit more in our favor. So how do we do that? How do we progress in our wisdom in order to gain humility, in order to gain perspective, in order to gain insight? Let's flip back to verse 18. I don't think this is new. But the bottom of verse 18, it says, The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. That doesn't just apply to my section on humility. That applies to all of them. Again, all of wisdom literature, over and over, Psalms 111, Proverbs 1, Proverbs 9, they all clearly state that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It starts and ends with the Lord. Now, obviously, if you've been in the church long, you've heard this phrase of the fear of the Lord. And it doesn't necessarily mean, for the believer at least, a a fear, a, a scared anxiety of the Lord. It means much more a reverent awe. It means much more a respect, a divine respect. Not someone you can just toy with and and, and maybe tell him, oh, I'm this righteous, so I deserve this amount of blessings. No, a reverence for who he is. Another movie illustration, The Chronicles of Narnia. Now used it last week, so I've got to do it this week. Do you remember the beavers? The beavers gave... um, up their home to the four kids who entered into Narnia. And they were describing the God figure, Aslan, in that story, saying, you, you know, that he's a lion. I'm so, and, and so little Lucy, probably six, seven years old, is a little bit scared of this. Oh, Aslan, this lion's coming. Well, she, she quickly says, well, Mr. Beaver, like, is he tame? Legitimate question. What does Mr. Beaver say? Nope. No, he's definitely not tame, but he's good. That makes all the difference in the world. That's fearing God right there. Understanding that, no, he is a lion. He is not tame. He demands righteousness. He is to be feared. He has power. He has all authority. No, he is certainly not tame. And even a lion fails to describe the tenacity of our Lord. But He's good. And that makes all the difference in the world. He's good. He is your Father. He fights for you, not against you as a believer. And so when we choose to to wrestle with this, when we choose to wrestle with the idea of fearing the Lord, it says in Scripture over and over, that is where you gain wisdom. That is where you gain humility. Humility. 
when you think of the Lord, how when you really wrestle with who God is, it quickly puts you in your place. It quickly causes you to come up with a humble perspective. It provides perspective when you look to the Lord and fear Him and realize our God has a sovereign plan. And no, I might not always like it, but He knows what He's doing a little bit. And he, sometimes He really graces you with a glimpse where you see something like Eli shared today where a lady just affirmed them in a great way where he, that was a God thing. That wasn't that lady's thing. That wasn't us as a church family thing. That, that was a God thing. Insight. When you wrestle with the reality of sin and what Christ has done to sin, that he's already victorious. You look at God, you gain insight. It's all interrelated. And you see how fearing the Lord and understanding who he is, it immediately translates to wisdom. Because you see, the person who fears the Lord really doesn't fear anything else. But the person who fails to fear the Lord will fear everything else. All the Hebel will be feared. Things will be way out of perspective. Insight will fail. Humility will fail if it's not rooted in the Lord. We're going to turn our attention in a moment to communion. And I intentionally had us put communion at the end of the service because I want to give us each an opportunity to wrestle with God a little bit. That's not a sinful thing. Whether you're coming to the table today and wrestling with a certain question, like, like, like Solomon precedes all this talk about wisdom and reality with, wrestle with God with that. Seek wisdom, but do that by looking at who God is. Fearing the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Jesus,